We'll take a little bit longer than normal to get there tonight because I really want us, we, we've got a lot of new people joining us, and that's awesome. And uh, one thing I love, like y'all learning the books of the Bible and then the themes to the books of the Bible, that's some pretty advanced stuff. I mean, for people your age to know that kind of thing, that's awesome. And that's really advanced, and I love it. I, I encourage it. Keep it going. It was fun watching Toby dominate everybody last Wednesday. I want to see more of that. But, but as important as it is to keep pushing on, keep growing in our knowledge of the Lord and, and the knowledge of his word, if you're not there, like if, the, if, if this Bible thing is new to you, if this church thing is new to you, and you're just really starting to scratch the surface and get into it, that's okay too. Like we all start somewhere. Like if, uh, if uh, you've got to look at the table of contents to find where Matthew is, that's perfectly fine. There's no shame in that. Unless you've been a believer for like 10 years, then you need to know that. You need to be on top of that, right? But like, uh, I want, so I want us to start tonight and with so many new people. Instead of just jumping into Matthew 4, I want us to really start from like a space level satellite view and zoom in onto Matthew 4 and where we're at. And so the question is, start, it really starts with, what is our purpose as people? What is the meaning of life? Kind of the classic question. Well, here's what the Bible would say the meaning to life is. The meaning of life is knowing God and glorifying Him. Having fellowship, a relationship with God and glorifying him. The Bible says that's why God created you. When God made this world and he made the stars and the planets and the animals and the oceans, and then he made people, the purpose for all of it, including you as a person, is to glorify him. And you know what makes you different as a human versus a dog, a monkey, or a rock? All those things glorify God, but as a person, you get to have a unique level of fellowship. You are created in God's image, and you can have a relationship with the, with the creator of this universe that a monkey never can have, that a tree never can have. You were made to have fellowship with God. Just a few quick verses that, that talk about this. Romans eleven thirty six. For from God and through God and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1, 16, talking about Jesus, says all things have been created through him and for him. So why were you created? You were created for Jesus. You were created for God. Yet there's a problem, right? So Adam and Eve were created to have fellowship with God. But what happened? The fall of man. The fall of man. Adam and Eve decided that they were not going to be obedient to God. And that introduces sin into the picture. Sin is simply disobedience to God. And what happened to our fellowship at that point because of sin. What happened? What does sin do 
to our fellowship with God. Destroys it? Destroys it. It, it makes us in opposition to God. It makes us enemies of the God who created us. And so what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is the story, the history of God's work to redeem sinful human beings, to redeem a sinful people to himself for his glory. The Bible is the story of redemption, of what God has done to restore the fellowship between himself and people that was interrupted when sin entered into the world. And who, how did he accomplish that? Through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ. He sent, John 3.16 is the famous verse, right? God sent his only son so who, that, to die for us so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, the penalty which God promised from the beginning, the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. But the message of the Bible is that God sent his son to pay that penalty on our behalf. That by faith in him, we will be redeemed. By trusting in his son, the redemption that he offers, we will be reconciled to God. We will be made sons of God. And so Matthew when you look at the Bible, that's the message of the Bible as a whole. But the thing is, this Jesus Christ, he came as a real person. When we celebrate Christmas, that's what we're celebrating is this eternal Savior, this eternal God coming in flesh in the form of a baby, coming in the flesh and living as a man on this world to truly die as a man for our sins. Jesus is 100% man and 100% God at the same time in one person. And the portion of the Bible that really dives into the details of the life of Jesus Christ are the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four books in the Bible that give us the history of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, living a perfectly righteous life, the righteousness that we could never fulfill, fulfilling that for us in his life, and then paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. And then after how many days? Three. Three days. After three days, Jesus truly dies, and after three days, he truly comes back to life in the flesh and raises from the dead, conquering death so that through him we can be forgiven and have eternal life. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four men record for us the history of the life of Christ from their perspectives. And we are in the middle of studying the book of Matthew. So does that make sense on what Matthew is kind of about? The history of the life of Jesus, this man who is fully man, fully God, the one and only son of God who came to die for our sins. And so we're in Matthew 4 already. And, and this is really, I was asking Riley before, like, what do you call in theater that, like, the transitional stuff that happens when you go, what, what's the difference between a scene and an act? Like, the difference or just what, like... What's the difference? Um, like, a scene is not too big of a change, an act is a huge change, kind of? An act is, like, an entirely different thing. Okay. 
So whatever you call that interlude between, maybe you call it an interlude, between two acts, two changes in a play, that's kind of where we're at tonight. Because where we've been, chapters one and two, chapters one and two introduce for us Jesus Christ, the Messiah, born in the flesh. Chapter one starts, because if you go look in the Old Testament, God made huge promises to Abraham and David about who their descendants would be in this redemptive plan. Remember, we talked about the Bible as just the history of God redeeming a people for himself. Well, this starts way back in the Old Testament with a guy named Abraham. And Matthew chapter 1 talks about how God has been faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham by tracing the lineage all the way from Abraham to the birth of Christ. And then chapter 1 and chapter 2 give us the circumstances around the birth of Christ. Um, He was born to a virgin mother named Mary. She was betrothed, which is kind of like being engaged, to a man named Joseph, who would soon be her husband. and, And when Jesus was born, immediately there's threats to his life. Herod who's king at that time, finds out that somebody, a baby has been born that people are saying is going to be the king of the Jews. And so Herod, he doesn't want any kind of threat to his power. And so Herod's command is, well, we got to kill all the babies. Go into Bethlehem, kill all the babies that have been born because somebody is saying that a baby is going to become the king of the Jews, a threat to my throne. And so Jesus flees to Egypt. What happens if it was if it was just like a false alarm? Like if there was actually no one who had been born that could have been a king, and then Herod just killed all the babies? That would have been pretty sad, right? But you gotta think, Herod was a very corrupt, crazy guy, and corrupt, crazy people do corrupt, crazy things, right? Um, and don't tend to worry about the, the consequences. So Jesus, his parents, Joseph and Mary, they take him to Egypt. Which, remember, Hosea 11.1 in the Old Testament said that God's son would be called from Egypt. So immediately we see that the circumstances around the life of Jesus are no coincidence. Jesus, his life is being orchestrated by the Father and fulfilling what the Old Testament had promised. Because the Old Testament for millennium has been pointing to the... Messiah who would come and promising that God would send his son to save his people. And, and Hosea 11.1 1 said that this Messiah would come from Egypt. After Herod dies, Jesus, his parents, moved him back towards Jerusalem. But there's another ruler, another king, who is also a threat to the life of Jesus. And so his parents take him north to Nazareth. Now, I'm sorry, there's no slides tonight. I ran into all sorts of technical issues. I tried to make slides. I ran into a problem on one computer, so I woke up early, went to another computer this morning, more problems, and so there's no slides. But if you could see a map, Nazareth is kind of the northern part of Israel. Um, That's where uh, Jesus' parents take him after Egypt. Hey, quit stealing from my notes. We're about to get there right now. No, very good. You're accurate. You're right on. Um, that's uh, that's uh, exactly right. We're about to we're about to go. Um, 
that the very next sentence in my notes, and that's where we sort of leave off in Matthew in the life of Jesus. Is he gets to Nazareth and he's a young child, and like he just said, he's exactly right. Um, interestingly, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us very little about the life of Jesus from about, I don't know, uh, the age of a young child to the age of 30. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and John tell us absolutely nothing. And Jenna, my wife, she was talking to me about that last night. That's pretty interesting, right? I mean, this is God's son. This is the Messiah. Aren't you interested in what he was like as an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old? It's fascinating, right? There's obviously, we can say this, there's nothing that God felt like we needed to know, right? Because God's going to tell us everything we need to know. There's obviously nothing. Now Luke chapter 2 does tell us about Jesus as a 12-year-old. When Jesus was 12, Luke chapter 2 tells us that he went to Jerusalem with his parents and um, he had interactions with the religious leaders in the temple and they were really blown away at the maturity and the knowledge of this 12-year-old. But that's it. Other than that, we don't have anything about the life of Jesus until he hits 30. So Matthew 1 and 2 covers him as a young child. And then chapter 3, we're fast-forwarding in Matthew to him being about 30 years old. And it reintroduces us to the life of Jesus. And chapters 3 and 4 are really the introduction to his earthly ministry. So um, in chapter 3, we're introduced to the forerunner, John the Baptist. And Jesus is baptized by John. And Go ahead. So how far was it to from where Jesus was born to Egypt? Is that like... Let's see here. That's a great question. How far is it? Can I give you a very unscientific answer? I'm looking at, I'm cheating. I'm looking at the map in the back of my Bible and like, you know, it gives you like this far is uh, 40 miles. I'm going to say 100 miles. How about that? I don't know. That's, that's a guess. You, that's a good read. You research that and bring us the answer next week. All right. But uh, um, so chapter three, we're introduced to John the Baptist and, the ba- and John baptizes Christ. And at that baptism, you have the Holy Spirit present, really commending the Son to his ministry. And the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You really see that full trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming together in sort of the inauguration of the earthly ministry of Christ. Then what we looked at last week, Um, chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, the proof of Jesus' righteousness by overcoming uh, the temptations of Satan. And so all these things really come together to set the stage for the earthly ministry of Jesus. And tonight, we're going to add three more components, okay? Three more components that we're going to add tonight as we set the stage for the earthly ministry of Jesus. And Next time we're together, we're gonna um, we're gonna really launch in to the Sermon on the Mount. 
the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is just one of the richest places we can find ourselves in all the Bible. Matthew doesn't hold back. When We're going to set the stage tonight with three more components, and then next week really launch in to the teaching and ministry of Jesus. And I mean, it just comes full force because the Sermon on the Mount is just one of the most beautiful things. So I beg you, please come back and hear just the extraordinary teaching, the extraordinary riches that are in the next few chapters. But tonight, I want to give you three different, three additional pieces. Number one, since I don't have slides, I'm going to give you the three kind of sections or bullet points we'll look at that we'll start to kind of hang things on. First of all, the geographic setting, the geographic setting. That's what we're going to see tonight is really the area of Israel that Jesus ends up making his home early on in his earthly ministry and where much of his early earthly ministry will take place. The second piece, the message, the message. We really get, while, while we're going to launch into so many details of what Jesus taught. Like I said, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, we cover almost everything in there. It's beautiful. But we're going to, the way we often give a theme verse for a passage, or even how we have the themes to the books of the Bible, we're going to get really a theme verse for the ministry of Jesus tonight. That'll be the second um, component. And then the third key component that we'll put into place is the first disciples, the first disciples. So we're going to get the big names tonight too, like Peter, John, James, some of the big hitters when it comes to the apostles and disciples, Jesus, we're going to see him call them tonight. Um, wasn't, is my logic wrong or wasn't his first miracle at a party when he um, turned water into wine? You're right. Yeah. So isn't that, was that, is that like in the timeline? That yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Matthew doesn't give us that. So yeah, that's when you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Think about this. If y'all watched a football game, and let, like let's say we watch the Super Bowl, and then I individually interview four of you about the Super Bowl. You know, if I interview. This is getting way off hand. This is crazy. But if I interview Abby, you know, Abby might really talk about like the halftime performance, right? Like the, oh yeah, the halftime performance was awesome and all this. And then, yeah, I take Tom Brady one or some guy. Like, or, and then Max, you know, Max is probably going to really break down for me like, Mahomes throwing the sideway pass and hitting the guy in the face mask and like the footwork and like Max is going to go into the detail. Fox, what are you going to talk about, Fox? Fox is going to tell me about the commercials. But you know what I'm saying? Like all four of you, all four of you, you're going to tell me about the same game, right? You're going to tell me the same ending. You're going to tell me the same score. But you're going to have different perspectives, different points of emphasis. So that's what we're going to have with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he brings up the wedding in Cana. So John, John was John chapter two is where that gets recorded is the first miracle of Jesus. John was so focused on Jesus as the Son of God, the divinity of Christ, that he 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 was 
God in flesh. That John focuses very heavily on the miracles of Jesus. The miracles that demonstrated his divine powers. And you look at the end of John, I think it's like chapter 20, verse 31 or something like that. John says, hey, if I wanted to write all the miracles of Christ, I couldn't do it. There's not enough pen and paper in the world to do it. But what I recorded for you, what I have recorded, I recorded so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And in believing that, that you would have eternal life. So Matthew, on the other hand, Matthew is very focused on the kingship of Christ, that Christ is uh, the, the long-awaited king of the Jews. And we see that focus in just the lineage from Abraham and David that he traces at the beginning of Matthew, and then the focus with Herod. And so, and so that, you're, you're correct, but that miracle doesn't actually get recorded for us in Matthew. But that shouldn't bother us because we see that same thing and almost anything we talk about right the same event you go interview four different people about it you get the same story but you get different emphasis and different perspective um but tonight we're going to put kind of those last pieces in place Uh, and so the first thing we're going to look at verses 12 to 16 like i said the first piece the geographic setting the geographic setting because remember Jesus, his parents took him to Nazareth, right? Which was kind of up north, the northern part of Israel. And most of you might have a map at the back of your Bible. But where where did Jesus go in chapter 3? Who did he interact with and where did he go? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist baptizing up in the northern part of Israel? Or where was he baptizing? The Jordan River. The Jordan River. The Jordan, which, you know, I mean, the Jordan River kind of runs north-south. But you got, like, the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. They call it a sea. But it's kind of like the Caspian Sea. Is the Caspian Sea really a sea? I don't know. The Sea of Galilee up here. Then the Jordan River flows south into the Dead Sea. And so it's kind of like the middle part that Jesus has come down to to meet up with John to be baptized by him. So that's where we geographically left off. The temptations took place down here in the wilderness area around the Jordan River, kind of in the southern part. So remember, Jesus is down here when we leave off uh, in verse 11. So picking up verses 12 to 16, the geographic setting is changing. Now, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, or I'm sorry, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of in shadow of death Upon them, a light has dawned. So a few potentially confusing things here, but not really. Stick with me. We can, we can work through these. So John the Baptist is taken into custody. Who knows what that's about? Any, anybody? You got to know all of Matthew here. So this is, this is a spoiler alert in some ways. Uh, it was because John was rebuking Herod for... 
marrying someone who was brother's wife. Yes, yes. Okay, so, and, and he's not making this up. We'll find it in Matthew 14 when we get there, okay? In Matthew 14, um, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist from chapter 3 had been arrested by Herod because Herod wanted to marry or his brother Philip's wife, which that's never a good thing, right? Like, let's never get into that. That's a bad thing. John the Baptist was correct, but Herod, not real happy about it. And um, the, Herod would normally have somebody like that killed and just done away with. But John is, we saw in the chapter three, John's ministry has a huge impact. Many people see him as a prophet. And so Herod is, is shy, nervous about just having John put to death like he normally would his opponents because he's afraid of the revolt that could happen. So instead, John is simply arrested and thrown into jail. And so hearing about this, hearing about the persecution of John, um, Jesus leaves the area of the Jordan that he's in, and he heads back up north into that Galilee region. Initially, so basically, Jesus goes back up into the Galilee, Galilee. region after Herod the Horrible puts John in jail. Right. Okay. Yep, yep. And uh, it, based on verse 13, he initially goes up into Nazareth, which is kind of the town that he grew up in as a child. So if you had like the northern region, Nazareth is kind of in the middle of the northern region. And the Sea of Galilee is over here. Verse 13 says he went to Nazareth for a little bit, but ultimately where he ends up settling is in Capernaum, which is a town right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so if, again, you flip to the back of your Bibles, you're probably gonna have a map that will show you this, uh, but the Sea of Galilee, verse um, 13, is where he ultimately ends up. And so what is this Zebulun and Naphtali stuff about? Those, if you think back to the Old Testament, remember, Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Joshua, who, okay, here we go. The theme of Joshua, what is that? Conquer and divide. Conquer and divide. Now, here's what, it's one thing to know the themes. That's step one. It's step two to know what that actually means. What's, he, what's that mean, conquer and divide? Lawson. Joshua, yeah. Yes. Okay. So there we go. Now we know the. Now we know what's going on behind there. So, in Joshua, they conquered the Promised Land. They conquer all this Israel place, and then they divide it up among the twelve tribes, the descendants of the twelve sons of Jacob. Two of them being Zebulun and Naphtali. So this Galilee region that we've gone into here in Matthew chapter 4 was divided among those two tribes. So that's what he's talking about here. This is just old territorial uh, language, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, the key, one of the keys to keep in mind here is, is this all just happenstance? 
Is this all just coincidence? What in this passage tells you that this is not all just simply coincidence? Because you go back like 200, 300, maybe 500 years back to Isaiah, where he prophesied that Jesus would move from the Galilee region. Yes, yes. So he points out right here, Ian, little Ian, that you want to be busy. Well, so Ian graduates in like a few weeks. And so at that point, you become just Ian, okay? So, but, uh, but anyhow, back to here. So, uh, so yeah, Ian here is exactly right. We know just this shouldn't surprise you too because as we've seen studying through Matthew time and time again Matthew is going back to the Old Testament and quoting for us the prophets that pointed to the Messiah and how the life the happenings of Jesus are in perfect fulfillment with the promised Messiah because Matthew's doing this his point is Jesus is the king Jesus is the long-awaited king of the Jews. And, and so that's why he keeps going back to pull from the Old Testament and say, look, this is happening just as the prophets told us it would happen. And he does it again here. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 is what he quotes, um, just like Ian pointed out. And this is, I might have it wrong. I want to say this is probably something written 600 years before the time of Christ. 600 years, and I might be wrong on that, but it's roughly that. 600 years before Jesus decides to settle in Capernaum and use this geographic area as the stage for his earthly ministry, this is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, again, the tribe, tribal areas, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. We live in a dark world. Sin has darkened this world. Sin, we see the effects of it all around us. And, and by this time, in world history, you had had a substantial amount of time between the last prophet that most of Israel ever got to see or hear from, Malachi, to the time of Christ, and on to this dark, sin-destroyed world stage steps the Messiah who shines the light of the gospel, the good news. Think about the message that the angels had for the shepherds in the field. Field. We bring to you good tidings, peace on earth, goodwill. Upon them, a light has dawned. So that gives us the first part. This geographic area that we're talking about here, this becomes important. This is like the setting where so much of the ministry of Christ takes place. So as we get ready next week to launch into the ministry of Christ, Keep that in mind. This is where we're going to be at for a lot of time. 
The second key component that Matthew gives us tonight as we kind of anticipate diving into the Sermon on the Mount next week is really a theme verse for the ministry of Christ. It's like he takes the full message of Christ and condenses it into just a few words. Our second component here, the theme and message of Christ's ministry, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What, what would you say as human beings, as people in general, what do you say we tend to live for? What are, what are some of the things that we really live for? Ourselves. Ourselves? He stole it? That's a good one, though. Cat? Money. Money? Um, leaving behind a legacy. Legacy. Anything that will just make us happy for a little bit, and then we throw it in the trash, and then we go after something else. All right. I saw one more hand. All right. Well, let's let's go in order there. If you, can, I'll try to remember what you said. You're exactly right. So most people live for themselves. Okay. How long? Does yourself last? Uh, our lives are but a mist. Our lives are but a mist. Like if you're lucky, if you're lucky, 90 years, right? 90 years. What's life expectancy right now? 72? Is that right? 78? Okay. She was like 700. Okay. But not that long, right? Hey, and here's another thing. You live for yourself. Are you promised tomorrow? No. Yourself is a very temporary thing to live for. Let's see. We said somebody said money. How temporary? How how long does money last? Yeah, your riches. Riches evaporate. There's countless stories throughout history of people with vast amounts of wealth who they're they're they're. Wealth, their assets, everything just just vanishes quickly. What did you say, um, Joe? Oh, what he said? Ourselves? Okay. Pleasure. You even said it in your answer, right? Temporary pleasure. People live for fleeting emotions, fleeting, fleeting pleasures, things that can never satisfy because you always need more and more and more. The bottom line is, apart from God redeeming us, as people, our lives tend to be oriented towards this world, which is very temporary. Temporary things, things that don't last, things that vanish, things that are meaningless, things that are but a vapor. And the message of Christ was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How long does the kingdom of heaven last? Forever. Forever. It's eternal. The kingdom of heaven is eternal. What, what, what Christ is saying is trade in the things of this world, the temporary fleeting things that are just a vapor for that which is eternal. The kingdom of heaven, the eternal, is at hand. It is, it is imminent. It is imminent. The beautiful thing about the kingdom of heaven is 
we don't even have to wait for Christ to return and destroy this earth and establish the new heavens and the new earth. We can serve the kingdom of heaven now, and we'll see that. And he says, repent. Repent. What does repentance mean? What is repentance? Turn from doing one thing and do the exact opposite. Yeah, it's turning from one thing to do the opposite. It's turning around and in the context of the Bible, it's turning from sin, turning from rebellion to God, to obedience. It's the pattern that we see over and over. Remember John the Baptist, as Alejandro taught us, John taught a message of repentance. And when people came, the religious leaders who came full of self-righteousness, um, he said, hey, until you're ready to turn your heart to God and worship the Lord in spirit and truth, uh, this baptism isn't for you. Worship God or bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And throughout the New Testament, the pattern we see that Paul, the apostles, uh, Jesus, that they set out for the life of followers of Christ is turning from sin to righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4 is such a classic passage on this very thing. Paul tells the Ephesians that used to steal. Stealing is sin. Stealing is disobedience to God. He tells them, steal no longer. Instead, I want you to go do the opposite. I want you to work hard and to work for money and to work so that you can give to people in need. How radical of a change is that, right? To go from being a thief to being a generous person that gives to people in need, yet that's what repentance is. Or also from Ephesians 4, he says, you who lie, stop lying. Instead, be a voice of truth. Speak truth to people. That's the repentance that Jesus calls us to. A radical change, a radical alteration of your life. Now, who accomplishes this radical alteration in your life? The Holy, Spirit. the Holy Spirit does. The Holy, when you come to faith, when you come to recognize that, okay, I am a sinner and my sin has created an obstacle between me and God, yet by faith I've come to recognize that Jesus is the path to forgiveness, that through his death I can be forgiven and I can be reconciled to God. When that faith is in you, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. The Holy Spirit is God himself living inside of you. And he, he drastically alters your life. He begins to produce the fruit of repentance that John talked about. John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance because that is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. You go read Galatians 5. Galatians 5, Paul says, hey, put away immorality, deceit, drunkenness, anger, malice, all these things. Instead, bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is really just the fullness of what we're going to see in the coming months as we go through the rest of these chapters of Matthew. This is the message really condensed into just kind of a theme statement. A theme statement here for the ministry of Jesus. The, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
there's an imminence here. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament, there's a warning. Don't delay in getting yourself right with God. Don't delay. It's at hand. It's at, Now is the time because when is Jesus going to return for his people? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Nobody knows. It could be tomorrow. Could be next week. Could be next month. But we don't know. And here's the other question. Hebrews 9.27 talks about how that we die and after death, we face God in judgment. When are you going to die? Uh, soon. Who knows, right? To me, that's one of the fascinating things about death is you don't know when it's coming. I think that's fascinating. Like, you, I don't mean to be morbid or weird, but you literally might not make it home tonight. I mean, the history, all the time, every day. And that's one of the fascinating things about life. It that's, never can get, it can always get worse. It can always get worse. No, it, it is one of the things that really does interest me, is how often, all the time, we die without any warning, without any expectation. Nothing is promised to us. Nothing is guaranteed. Every day, people die who did not plan on dying. Every day. Thousands of people. Some people, you, you know what I'm saying, all right? So here, hey, listen. So that, that's when Jesus, that's the urgency that we see throughout the New Testament. We don't know. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Part of that repentance is just a radical alteration of life. And we're going to see some quick examples our third component here of, uh, that we're going to put into place. So we're setting the scene to launch into the earthly ministry of Christ. We've got the geographic area, right? Northern Israel, Capernaum, by the sea. We've got the theme verse for the ministry of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now we get a third ingredient that plays a prominent role in the earthly life of Christ, his apostles, his disciples. We get the first, uh, we get, we get um, our first ones called here. The first disciples called, our third and last part tonight. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Uh, two sets of brothers here get called to follow Jesus. And these are some big names, right? Like Peter, um, you think Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written under the direction of Peter? Like, you could really look at Mark as Peter's account of the Gospel, just written through Mark. Um, you got first, second Peter, you, which are letters that were written by this guy that Jesus calls right here. You have James, or 
No, actually, that's the wrong James. Um, then you have John. You have John, though, here, the Gospel of John, uh, first, second, third John. So we've got some big names here um, coming at us. But Jesus is walking down the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, and he, he meets this first set of brothers, Peter and Andrew. And Matthew tells us these were fishermen. Uh, fishermen, uh, this was a very major industry, obviously, by the Sea of Galilee, such a big body of water. And it wasn't enough to make you rich necessarily, but it was their living. This is the way they made their living. This is the way that um, they take care of their families. And, and so Jesus shows up. It's a very interesting thing, right? Because if somebody was going to show up and talk you into leaving your family behind, to leaving your career behind, like your way of making a living, what would somebody have to say to you to do that? It'd be pretty hard for me, right? Like you can hardly talk me into going out to dinner because like, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm upset. But to talk me into leaving everything? Go ahead. I don't know, either one. It probably cost, probably cost a lot to get me to leave my family. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is a big deal. These guys are in the middle of their job, and Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is saying, look, radically alter the entire purpose for your life. Like, I am changing everything. Right now, you're living a normal human life. You're working for your family. Your life is about just providing for yourselves. Your life is about this world. I want you to change the purpose of your life to now being about God's kingdom. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you an instrument for building my kingdom. It radically alters everything. And then he repeats it. He repeats that with James and John, the brothers that, uh, that we meet in verses 21 and 22. And it gets even highlighted there what they're leaving behind because it's their father. Like the father sees the two sons that he runs his business with leave to go follow after this man, Jesus Christ, that uh, up until here, I don't know what they had maybe previously heard about him, but they leave everything. It is a complete alteration of who they are. And look, for us, the reality is that God calls us to the same level of change. Now, that doesn't mean that, obviously, you are not going to be an apostle, right? Like, you aren't going to live the life that Peter lived. And maybe that doesn't mean that you leave everything to go be a missionary or a pastor. Maybe it does. For many people, it does. For these people, it did. But we also have plenty of examples throughout the New Testament of people that were called to follow Christ that didn't necessarily leave their jobs and their family. But you know what did happen? Their lives and their purposes were radically altered so that their jobs were no longer about just money. And their families were no longer just about what we typically think of as family. But everything, the, what, the entire purpose was radically changed for the building of God's kingdom. And so here's our application tonight. Hopefully you already got the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand part, right? 
Like, hopefully you know that that applies to you. Your life is not promised for another day, another year. Be ready. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But look at the, the, the same alteration that happens in the lives of these men. It's the same alteration that God calls you to. When Christ calls you to follow him, he's changing the purpose of everything in your life. Maybe you keep playing sports. That's fine. But the reason you play them, it's totally different. You no longer play for yourselves or even your team. But now you find ways to do it to the glory of God. And when you go out to work, you find a job. You think, okay, I want to go do a good job. I need money. The paycheck is good. But more importantly, above all, how do I do this in a way that builds God's kingdom? How do I do this to honor and glorify God? How do I become a fisher of men, fishers of men? Or school. Your purpose in school gets radically altered. Sure, you need to make good grades because you need to go to college, you need to get a good job, you need to be able to be a productive part of society, take care of your family. That's all great. But that's not your primary purpose. Your primary purpose when you go to school, when you step into the classroom, when you interact with teachers, your parents, your friends, is okay, how do I most glorify God in what I'm doing here? And it's not always obvious or apparent, and it's not always fireworks and magic. Sometimes it's just the nuts and bolts of going through your day and doing what you're supposed to do. But there's going to be challenges, there's going to be temptations, there's going to be opportunities. And your mindset is always defaulted towards, okay, what does God want me to do and how do I glorify him? That's the radical life change that we see in the lives of Peter, Andrew, James, and John here. But it's the radical life change that God calls us all to. And what's great about the New Testament is as you read through the New Testament, you come across person after person after person who accepts this call and their life is radically altered. And my prayer for you all is that you all would have that same experience. I hope you come back. Can't wait for the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do the Beatitudes next next Wednesday night, which is just awesome. Um, so, like, I've loved Matthew so far, and we haven't even gotten into the best parts yet. So, really excited about it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, for who he is and what he accomplished for us on this earth. And I just pray that the importance of repentance, the importance of giving our life to you, that you would make that vividly clear to all of us and that in doing so, our lives would be radically altered and radically changed to love you, follow you, and seek to serve you in all that we do. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Hey, if you could, uh, three things. Remember, Naomi is queen. We do what she says. So nobody, just hang out in here until parents show up, enjoy each other. Pick up all trash, clean up, put up chairs. Thank you, guys.